Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode 93 of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with my other co-host, Pete Wall. How are you, Pete? Yeah, pretty good. Now, after a good week's recovery from being away... Uh... I was going to say, how was... How was your holiday? But I was, oh, I was with you, so I don't really need to ask. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have some idea of the heady light, uh, heady highs and horrible lows of that that holiday. Um, but overall, Paul, as you ask, it, it was really good, and primarily I say so because uh, obviously good company, but also great music. <laughs> like uh, just some incredible performances at the festival that you know we could talk about if we had a music podcast. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that. But what we do have is this incredible film show, which we're going to get on with about now. Um, what about you, man? Did you enjoy the holiday? I couldn't really gather from your sort of blank face ex- facial expression whether you're having a good or bad time. It's so, so different. Uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty much my facial expression in general. So, uh, no, I did have a very good time. I think, uh, yeah, just Nick Cave was, was the highlight for me. I think you went to Fever Race, didn't you? But, um, yeah, Nick Cave was incredible. Uh, Primavera was was incredible. Very, very tiring, I have to say. I think in the, well, I'm now, I would now probably say I am just about in my late 30s, so it's quite a slog. About five, four days of, four days of all-nighters. So, yeah, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And again, good company, feet. so, yes. Yeah. I, well, <laughs> I, I'm not going to name any names because it's not, it's not you and it's not anyone that you would directly know. But I was in a in a text conversation with someone yesterday. He's the same age as we are, um, and I was meant I mentioned the fact that we've been to Barcelona, and he said, "Oh yeah, Barcelona's a beautiful city. Always great to go there." And then he threw in unprompted, "But I do need to sit down a lot more these days." And I don't know if I have a lot of patience for that because, yeah, as you say, Paul, we're you know we're in of an age in our mid thirties. However. We can, let's not be talking like we're in our mid-60s too early, you know? <laughs> I think yours is justified because, as you point out, we had basically every night for about four or five nights going home, going to bed at 4, 5, 6 a.m. That's a different thing. But just walking around a European city <laughs> yeah. should be a struggle. Come on. No, it shouldn't. No, absolutely not. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a stretch. That is a stretch. But yeah, Barcelona, an incredible place. Um, we'll probably go back at some point, I would have thought, whether to prove it or not, depending on the lineup. But yes. Anyway, let, enough of our holiday. Uh, let's get into the podcast itself. Yeah. So a thing that we usually do about this time, Paul, is we step into the foyer and we talk about something that we've been thinking about recently. Now, all that we have really been thinking about is sort of rehydrating and recovering. But at the same time, an event's taken place over the last few days, uh, which is the E3 conference in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. In L.A., yes. But that's nothing to do with films, Pete. I hear the audience shout. <laughs> legitimate, um, a legitimate criticism of an idea that I floated before we did this recording. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is basically because of the few things that do directly tie in to films. Aside from the fact that I guess we could make the argument that increasingly the game space and the film space uh, are sort of moving in on each other's territory. But three things I wanted to bring up in terms of things that appeared... We'll start with the maybe lowest interest and move up from there. So I'm going to arbitrarily place uh, Shadow of the Tomb Raider as number three. Now, the reason for this being connected to films, obviously, not long ago at all, Paul, we reviewed the the big screen, latest big screen adaptation of the Tomb Raider franchise with Alicia Vikander. Have you, first of all, did you see E3? Did you see the new footage from Tomb Raider? And are you excited about the game? Uh, I did see I did see three I did see the new footage and yes I am excited about the game. These games seem to be getting quite a lot of shit recently, which I kind of disagree with. 
Um, and actually, the part of the reason I am excited about the game is because whilst I was watching the film, I just thought I'd rather be playing a new Tomb Raider game. And voila, here is a new Tomb Raider game. Exactly. So uh, exactly. yes, they are probably, I would say, probably more exciting than, certainly more exciting than their cinematic counterparts have been. Um, so yes, in short, I am excited. Sure. I think it will be better than the film uh, by a long margin. One thing in the film that I don't think we did get was uh, Alicia Vikander slash Laura Croft covering herself in mud and blending in and becoming the jungle, which is like the big feature that they're pushing in the new Tomb Raider movie, which is something I'm all for. And I like it again, not a video game podcast, but I like the element of trying to add something to the core gameplay that maybe hasn't been there in the last couple of entries, as much as I'm a fan of those entries. And this is essentially more of the same, isn't it really? I mean, more of the good thing but but more of the same nonetheless when they rebooted and we're talking about the, the line being crossed between film and, and games really uh when they rebooted it they became ever more cinematic anyway so i think you know a lot of this in the, in the same way i mean uh, arguably the new tomb raiders owe a lot to uncharted which owes something to tomb raider anyway but they all owe something to indiana jones so you know there is the the, the links are there certainly and i'm quite excited about this one what did you have next on your uh, e3 E3 countdown. <laughs> On this hotly anticipated E3 rundown, <laughs> I have got the new version of Spider-Man that is coming to consoles in the not-too-distant future. I believe this year, later this year. Yes. Um, and it looks to me, as a sort of semi-educated video gamer slash observer, that this is a lot like what we got with the more recent Batman games. Am I on the mark, off the mark? I mean, you've played those things. Um are you excited for this one? I suppose first of all, the, the... I am quite excited for I am quite, quite excited for this one. Uh, obviously, Marvel did a pretty successful Spider-Man reboot, which gave me a bit more passion back for the character after we've been flogged to death in Amazing Spider-Man One and Two. Which I think you said you watched Amazing Spider-Man, didn't you, recently? Yeah, I really watched Spider-Man, <laughs> and I was like, I watched all half the movie, being like, I actually don't think I've ever seen this before. <laughs> but then certain parts of the film sort of were somewhere in my memory, so I clearly had. But it is a lot worse than I remember it being. <laughs> it's very bad. And it's got some like cringe-worthy CGI with the, what's it, crocodile whatever character in it. Um, yeah. That looks, um, for want of that word, absolute trash. So, yeah, I, I'm, I was sort of taken aback by, first of all, how much time has passed since that movie came out. Uh, and I guess a little bit less time the the sequel. But then um, also by the fact that I... I to have very little love for the Andrew Garfield spider What did you think of the most recent one, though, the Marvel one? You watched that. I'm sure we reviewed that on the show, didn't we? Homecoming. Yes, we did. I've definitely come around to Tom Holland. I think coming out of all the, the hype that he had off the back of um, The Impossible, I sort of thought the train was sort of getting a bit... Um, like the, the brakes were broken on that particular train, that hype train, and like nobody could do anything but put Tom Holland in absolutely everything. At this point, I feel the opposite. Give him every role. I think he's a charming guy. I think he's got his head screwed on. I think he's grounded. And I think he's doing good stuff with, with the new sort of the latest iteration of Spider-Man. Whether or not I'm going to be interested in the game is a, another matter. Because like I say, I like those Batman games. I've played them though. And if this is all about, you know, standing stealthily up high and then sort of dropping down and taking people out uh, like henchmen, faceless, burly henchmen, I could do that for a bit. I don't know if it's going to hold my attention too long. See, I, I've 
I've got a positive feeling about this because it, it, it does remind me a lot of the last probably very good Spider-Man game, which I think was on the PS1 I keep years and years and years ago. And it was that was Spider-Man 2 on the PS1. There's so many things called Spider-Man 2 now, it's getting confusing. So this was the game Spider-Man 2 on the PlayStation 1 many, many years ago. And it was very, very, very good at the time. So hopefully it's developed by Insomniac, who have got a very good... PlayStation 1? Yes, PlayStation I Two. I think it's PlayStation One. I might be wrong. But was it doing like three D anything at the time? Yeah, maybe it was PS Two then. I don't I'm know. Feeling it might have been PS Two, but I don't know. We didn't do deep video game research, as you can see. <laughs> no. It's not really often. Anyway, it reminds me of an old game called Spider Man Two that was very, very good. That I remember playing. Whichever console it was on, I remember playing it. It was very, very good. Uh, and hopefully, it's a bit more like this. And Tom Holland's uh, revival and Marvel's revival of the Spider Man character in Spider Man Homecoming, and certainly in Avengers. Uh, Infinity War as well has made me more anticipated, made me anticipate this game more. So what was number one on your E3, E3 countdown? Well, sir, number one is going to go to... Now, I, a thing that I've heard a great deal of hate about since the E3 conference because of the, uh, the sense that this guy has kind of disappeared up his own anus and become sort of all cryptic and lynchian. But it is uh, Mr. Hideo Kojima's new game, Death Stranding, which may or may not come out in one to five years' time. Um, the reason this ties into films is because we've got Norman Reedus, who I think is is at this point very well known to film and TV fans, uh, but also added, and unbeknownst to me before the E3 um, conference, Leia Sadu has been added to the cast of... of uh, Do you know who else is in this uh, To The Bionic Woman? No, Mads Mikkelsen and Guillermo and Del Toro. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so like proper... Pretty cool. Proper bona fide links to the world of film. And like, I don't know, man. Like, I think it's very easy to sh- try and shoot someone down for doing something that is, you know, egregiously ambitious. But at the same time, I'd rather Kojima shoots for the stars and misses than sets his sights on just trotting out Metal Gear games for the rest of time. So I don't know. Maybe I'm in the minority. Well, I think that from what I've seen of it, it looks to be incredibly cinematic. Kojima's a massive film fan. I think he certainly cites John Carpenter as one of his favourite, if not his favourite director. Um, and actually the the character of Snake uh, in Metal Gear Solid is based around Kurt Russell's character, Snake Plissken, who's going from New York. So he's a massive film fan. Um, he certainly is, uh, I would say, on auteur of video gaming. He's Not everyone likes a lot of his idiosyncrasies, but what he puts out is definitely his work. Um, there's some very strange and Japanese bits in the Metal Gear series, and I expect that can, to continue here. But I'm totally with you, I think. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I've got to pick you up on, on the description. Strange and Japanese. I, yes. I'm going to defend yeah. some of the Japanese. <laughs> but no, I know what you yes. mean. Like very yeah. sort of culturally specific or just, yeah. Yeah. just really fucking yeah. weird sometimes. Uh, so I think, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. And I think I'm with you. It's, it's the same thing with film jury. I'd almost someone rather take a risk and get it wrong than just trot out another blockbuster so i think yeah and this is where you know game directors and film directors the fact that he's working del toro is actually in this is is pretty strange when i think if you go back to last year's trailer you can see del toro in the trailer which is weird watching the digital version of him so it's pretty cool so obviously he and i know del toro for many years i think has wanted to make a video game and, and never quite happened amongst all the other things that he does that never quite happens for him which is a shame but he's a big fan of, of video games in general so yeah i think it would be an interesting interesting crossover and i think some people's criticism of the Metal Gear games has been that there's almost they're almost too cinematic. There's there's massive. I think at the end of Metal Gear three or four, there's a sort of a ninety almost ninety minute cutscene, which I love, but not everyone does. So I think of of all the of all the 
the, the the characters in video game design, if that makes sense, the kind of the name celebrities of which there aren't loads, but Kojima certainly is one. I think he is the most cinematic games director that I'm aware of, anyway. So, I mean, have you have you to, to round uh, it yes. off? Have you play, played uh, the Phantom Pain? So the opening of the Phantom Pain is like so great that it could be like. Okay, forget for a second whether it's just a big cutscene, which a lot of it basically is. But like, it's so good that if that was the opening to a movie, oh, I'd yeah, be like, like some of locked the in on the or the arrival of anything you see on the big screen without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and for that, even for that reason alone, Paul, I think we can both get on board with the idea that this is at least worth keeping an open mind and sort of anticipating, and then throw in all these stars that we've mentioned. I mean. I just want to see how something like that turns out. And I just hope, upon hope, that we don't have to wait. Like I, would hope, I would hope for probably that's going to be a stretch. next year. I would have thought. I mean, it's, it was announced, what, two, possibly two years ago now that he was working on it. So hopefully I, I, it won't I be far off. There was gameplay footage in the E3 trailer, so that's always a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> there was walking around footage, but I've heard they didn't have an engine until 2017, so it's only really been in development for a year. So we'll see. But enough about video games for now. I'm sure we'll get back to them at some point because we're both fans. Um, at this point, we'd usually put in a fancy pants little sting that we got from somewhere on the dusty parts of the internet. But we're not going to do that because Jack Mills isn't here. So what we're going to do instead is jump into the next section of our exciting trip through the cinema. And Paul, that section is always and only known as Popcorn Movies. What have you got this week? Robocop. Not the not shitty it. not the shitty remake from a few years ago that I watched a video, a YouTube video of someone desperately trying to defend the other day. Uh, but the original uh, 1986 Paul Verhoeven, I'm going to say it, Pete, masterpiece. The original Verhoeven masterpiece, Robocop. My God, that film is incredible. Uh, I just, what, I just, I'm going to gush, really. Every time I watch it, I forget just how good it is. It's the, the perfect balance of action, comedy, ridiculous gore, and razor-sharp satire. Just the whole film just works. There's nothing else quite like it, I don't think. Um, uh, even Verhoeven's tried to emulate it with like, Starship Troopers, which takes a similar track, which is a lot of fun, but not Robocop. So, yeah, just Robocop. You've, you've seen Robocop, Peter. I oh, yes, you. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, sort of like crossing back over into our like previous point of conversation, is Robocop a property, and I don't want to risk sacrilege here, Paul, but that risks, or no, that leaves itself open to maybe somebody taking it on as a next generation video game adaptation anytime soon. Uh, possibly. I mean, if you look at, I mean, the, the amount of the amount of sequels they've made and the TV series, they're obviously it's not sacred to anyone, I don't think. So and they've made, um, there's Robocop games, video games that obviously have existed in the past, but just nothing in the last couple of generations. So I wonder, like, whether that would be a thing. I mean, that would be a thing you would be interested in, surely, if it if it was good. Yeah, if it was good. But um, no, but the, yeah, yeah, but no, the film itself, I don't think has lost any of its any of its power really i mean like the it's on first viewing i think when most i probably first watched this when i was quite a bit younger and you kind of miss a lot of the satire of it but just the line it's it's not subtle but just some of the lines where uh, towards the beginning of the film where a 209 malfunctions and shoots the guy on the board and then you're going downstairs and you've got miguel ferris character just they go well well that's life in the big city and they're just like what the fuck <laughs> like like just it's just this skewering annihilation of, of corporate america just it's just this this yeah just skewers almost everything in robocop like nothing's left a chance the little the little like uh the adverts for the fake products like the family playing newcomb instead of like battleships and that those kind of things it's just 
it's just very very funny the action scenes are very well put together the actual the actual effects on robocop itself look still look incredible to this day i think um peter weller i think infamously hated playing the role because the suit was well i mean, you can imagine wearing that suit it must be absolutely grim yeah. but but it worked because it was actually a suit that they built so that looked really really good um and yeah the whole film is just um is, is peerless almost in terms of uh sort of 80s sci-fi action it's, it's very very good um and i think it's one of those rare genre films that can cross over and people not necessarily into sci-fi could look at this and go actually no that is a that is an incredible film so yeah i will revisit it as soon as as possible although paul as i admitted to you off air before we started it is going to be very 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 tough for me to keep up a decent rate of film viewing over the next four weeks because there's a little football tournament that's starting today. You came up with an idea for that, didn't you, Pete? You came up with an idea. Let's so let's let's say it now. Now now the ideas. Now we're talking about we'll talk about the World Cup only once this episode. I'll allow it. Okay. But... <laughs> well, maybe I'll, I'll tag something on the end of the episode as well as a reminder of this. But the idea is that um, me as a, a big football fan and Paul, um, I think it's safe to say less so, uh, if if none at all. <laughs> Uh, we want some way to connect up with the zeitgeist and what's going on right now, which, of course, is the World Cup in Russia. But Paul doesn't have any interest in talking about football. This isn't a show about football. So we're going to tie it in with films by watching a movie from each of the countries that opposes England, that plays against England in the tournament. This means that our run, um, I'm sure you're all aware by this point, is going to start with a film from Tunisia, because that's the opening game come Monday for England. Then we'll have a film from Panama, one of our probably greatest challenges. As um, or a film with the word Panama in the title, it, if yeah. we can't find a film from yeah, Panama. Right. Go, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then finally, for the group stage at least, we'll have a film from Belgium, which will obviously be a lot easier to find. And we'll do reviews of those films so as to, like I say, kind of tie in. We haven't decided yet whether it will just be part of the show or whether it will be like little bonus episodes. But then as the tournament progresses and you know, obviously England progress as well, right? Touch wood, fingers crossed. Then whoever the team comes up against will find a film to dig our teeth into from that country so that we get a bit of a worldview as the World Cup plays out. It's a small idea, but I think it'll be a fun one. And yeah, I'll, I'll remind people about that at the end of the show. Shall we get back to popcorn movies? Yes, it's your turn, Pete, I think. Yeah, so I'm going to briefly review something that um, you've reviewed before, but I didn't really talk about on the show when I caught up with it myself. That is uh, Johannes Roberts' film, The Strangers Pray at Night, which is the same director who directed 47 Meters Down, I believe, which was a uh, somewhat effective shark. Uh... Yeah, I quite enjoyed that, actually. It was, um, it was not quite as good as The Shallows, but better than I anticipated it being, so yes. Yeah, I, I might delete the word quite from your sentence, but apart from that, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I think the, the, the key word for me in both talking about The Strangers Pray at Night, this movie, and that movie is effective. I don't think either of them are particularly great, but I think they're both very effective at doing what they do. And I think the director's got a decent handle on how to keep you uh, fairly gripped, how to make things more unsettling than they might otherwise be, and how to tease out a kind of horrific story from, let's say, a, a fairly limited to middling budget, right? I mean, you've seen both movies, so you know what I'm talking about here right yeah absolutely uh yeah i think they were i think this is effective enough um i think it, it was a bit a little bit bloated in places but the set pieces for me delivered um and where you stand did you did you enjoy well you it sounds like you enjoyed it enough i did yeah i mean the basic setup in case um you weren't listening when paul talked about this which i'm sure you were but um was <laughs> the the 
there's a family, as we get with a lot of these kind of um, people in peril movies, a family takes a kind of wrong turn. They go to a holiday home. They're supposed to be there, but nobody else is there when they show up. They were given the address uh, and uh, allowed to stay there by some friends of theirs. So they pick up the keys, get this mobile home, and then um, the parents and their two teenage kids seemingly are going to have a night of sort of settling in and bedding down. And then weird stuff starts to happen, like creepy girl uh, who has no invitation turns up at the door and sort of stares menacingly at them and then walks away and then comes back and then walks away. And you can see that all is not well. Um, The film is called Strangers Pray at Night. So you've already got an inkling of what might happen during the sort of 90 minutes of this thing. Uh, the mum in this film is played by Christina Hendricks, who is an actress that I like very much, not just because she is one of the most beautiful living human beings, but also because I think she is a very good actress. There is um, reason to be cautious if you're going to this movie for your love of Christina Hendricks. And I will say more <laughs> about that. Yes. Um, there is also reason to be cautious if you don't like seeing people getting sliced and or bludgeoned, because you might get some of that in this as well. Some of it, though, from a sort of a horror fan point of view, very effective bludgeoning and very effective slicing. And the final point that I want to make about the film is that the thing I think is its strongest element, even if it might seem a bit played out in 2018, is the director um, juxtaposes scenes of like real violence and suffering with these kind of disco hits and like songs that you would expect to be ill-fitted to material like this that we've seen in things like um, The Guest that we both raved about a while ago, but work really well. There's a particular sequence in a swimming pool with a lot of blood. And, um, oh, what's the track that plays there, Paul? Can you remember? Uh, no, not I Think We're Alone. Is it I Think We're Alone now? I think that's right. Yeah, I think... I think it might be. Yeah, and it's... Or similar, yeah. Yeah, f- fantastically, fantastically effective in my humble opinion. So, yeah, that one is Strangers Pray at Night. Uh, check it out. It was released this year, 2018. Director Joanna's johannes roberts and i think it'll be streaming soon if not already uh paul what else have you got uh this is a film that you talked about uh, i'm not deliberately stepping on each other's toes there but this is a film that you saw and i didn't at the time i've now caught up with uh coralie fargut is that you saying her name uh coralie fargut we're going to go with that uh, you're normally better at this than me uh this is the uh controversial exploitation thriller revenge starring matilda lutz now, you've seen this and talked about it briefly on the show, but didn't want to spoil too much because I hadn't seen it. Yeah. Um, we can get into it a bit more now, which is quite exciting. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I read a lot about this film going into it, expecting it to be, uh, well, from, expecting it to be like a feminist, an overtly feminist take on the rape revenge uh, genre, which is something that I've done quite a bit of research about when I did my film degree. Uh, did a dissertation on I Spit on Your Grave and that, that kind of thing. So I was very intrigued by the premise of this going in. Uh, and I believe it's a female director. Unless I'm, that strikes me as, a, yeah, it's definitely a female director. So, um, yeah, I I really, really enjoyed the film from an exploitation point of view. But Pete, I can't really see, for me, I can't see how this is any more feminist than, say, the I Spit on Your Grave remake or any any of, the, any of those kind of films, really. I mean, the, the rape scene is, is a lot less... Uh, graphic than in previous films of this type. I'll give it that much, but I can't see it as a, a major, any more feminist than any of those films. Do you see where I'm coming from there? Or? Yeah, I can. I mean, it's, it's difficult territory for two reasons. One, because we are uh, both two males talking about yes. it. And two, because it's very difficult, I think, to break down uh, the point that you're making 
without referring to the particular thing that happens about a third of the way through this film. Mm. Um, but the particular thing that happens about a third of the way through the film, and I'm not talking about the sort of sexual assault here, is no. the thing that, um, that sort of bends the rules. And it, it bends the rules for, I think, the purpose of allowing the focus of the film to be on vengeance rather than suffering. And I think that that's maybe... Okay, that's an interesting point, yeah. At the basic level, that's maybe where a lot of this commentary is coming from. Yeah. You know, you're right, as you said, uh, the the scene itself of sexual assault in the film, although um, difficult to watch and unsettling and uh, aggressive and and brutal and all those words, it's not, I don't think, as... um, anything like a sort of salacious and um, and sort of, for want of a better word, like exploitative as a lot of video nasty, rape revenge type of those attacks where it feels like what we're doing here is, we're, oh, this is a terrible assault, but look at her tits. I mean, that's like, yeah. I would like to use more flowery language, but that's really the heart of, of the issue, I think. However, having said all that, like, I, maybe I'm with you in the sense that I didn't necessarily feel myself being blown away by like a reimagining of a subgenre. What I saw... No, I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, what I saw more was a like a slightly different flavour of a genre that I still I still kind of don't have that much interest in. And mm. I mean, certainly this, I don't find this interesting or subversive in the same way that I did with uh, L. Uh, talking okay. Paul, Paul Verhoeven again that yeah. you know you mentioned earlier on. So I don't know. I mean, you said you came out of it really enjoying it as an exploitation film. How much did you enjoy it as that? A lot, in fairness. I think it's 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 very easy for someone. And uh, I watched uh, another film recently called Pool Party Massacre, who uh, I felt a bit bad about because I put something on Instagram about not liking these guys' films, and the guys read it and came back, and they were they were very gracious to be fair, and I tried to be gracious back, but. So Paul Party Massacre, is, and this is relevant here because that's also exploitation, it's very easy to pump out cheap exploitation where people just get, where women get cut up and killed or men get cut up and killed or whoever. Like, it's very easy to pump out cheap exploitation. And if the gore's good enough and, some, and it can be, sometimes it's quite funny, it can be quite entertaining. It's not that difficult genre to make. It is a difficult genre to make well. This is the thing. I think a lot of people don't realise this. And for me, revenge is very well-made exploitation. I haven't seen an exploitation film as well shot as this for possibly ever, if not for a very long time. Um, and in fairness, I think the performances are actually very good in this. You've got Matilda Lutz, who was in Rings, apparently. I didn't, I didn't recognise her from Rings, which I think was one of my worst films of last year. Uh, but it, it's very well acted. Um, it's beautifully shot. Like the the, the way that the use of colour and that kind of thing is is great. Um, the, some of the landscapes are used and the locate the single location of this sort of luxury villa place out in the seemingly in the middle of nowhere that looks very very nice um and the you know the the gore i think is very very well done but the the actual the the horrible scenes are horrible. you are you are kind of cringing when you need to cringe so just just to jump yeah, on one thing like before you get to that part were you with me in feeling that like it maybe it was unavoidable but the early uh, interplay the early dialogue is very awkward because you've got all these characters speaking in their second or third language, um, speaking in, in English, but speaking in English quite badly and in a way that makes them seem like less relatable, less three-dimensional characters. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? And I don't, I just want... It's not something I picked up on, actually. I'd forgotten you said that until just now. It's not really something I picked up on, to be honest. Yeah, now I think about it, I see where you're coming from. But... Yeah, I, I, I wonder whether that was actually to the detriment of the film because... You know, for the stakes to be established, 
you've got to have a proper uh, insight into who these people are. And I felt like yeah. had these kind of, you know, cardboard cutouts who were acting horrifically early on. <laughs> but, but then your point, to me anyway, becomes dulled and lessened if what you're painting is not sort of fully rounded, recognisable human beings, but instead just sort of like um, ciphers for, for misogyny, which it seemed like, you know, at least two of the three male characters were so i don't know I think that's that's the kind of genre trait though really it's like a trope of the genre really and maybe yeah i think when i say performance is incredible i think her performance was very very good more so than the the two and and the kind of lead villain i thought he was good but the other two guys yeah not so much but it's yeah it's, i suppose it's kind of a trope of the genre and i suppose if you are going to properly properly turn the genre on its head and reconstruct the genre then yeah you're absolutely right you need to be looking at everything rather than just shooting it a bit differently uh, you need to be looking at other things if you're going to really redefine the genre. Um, for me, I'm a big exploitation fan, so this, I thought, was great. It, it worked for me. Uh, not everyone is. I don't think it's going to... It's certainly not going to change the mind of someone who's not into exploitation if you show them this film. Um, it's not an easy watch by any stretch. Um, so, yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, finally, I suppose, from my side, yeah, I like this movie too. Like, I maybe don't like it as much as it sounds like you do, but... Um, I heard as well people talking about how, uh, you know, female directors making this kind of uh, grungy, exploitative stuff has been on the up and up recently. And then comparing uh, the movie with Julia DeCorno's film Raw. And I think mm. I think we're getting a bit carried away if we're making that comparison, because I think that that film is very different, but but significantly, in my opinion, anyway, significantly superior, at least in terms of being something that is interesting in a sort of dialectic, have a conversation about that sense. Not yeah, I would say, I would agree with that. I would say that whereas uh, Revenge for me, purely an exploitation film, and that's fine. I'm not saying, I said, I, you'll never hear me criticise that. I think Raw is not an exploitation film. There's a lot more going on in Raw than there is going on in Revenge. Um, I like them both. but Paul, is there a lot more going on in your side of this conversation when it comes to popcorn movies? Have you got anything else? Because I have watched little to nothing recently. So if you've got another one, throw it in there. So what I'm thinking is I went to see a film called Zama last night, which is directed by Lucretia Martel. But then I'm thinking it's from Argentina. So if England face Argentina in the World Cup, then I might save it. So I'm going to save it for them. So well, if we I, get to Argentina... I hold your breath, Paul, because they're on, they're on the wrong side of the drawer, I believe. Right, OK. So, uh, yeah, most likely we're going out to... Germany or Brazil in the quarterfinals. Right. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna remain positive. I'm gonna hold back, Zama, just in case we get to Argentina because it's an Argentinian film. So uh, yeah, so I hold that back. It's worth watching. I'll leave it at that for now. But yes, which brings us to where we are now: coming attractions, aren't we? We'll be sir, on coming attractions. Uh, yeah, that's right. This is the part of the show where Paul and I talk about a film that's coming up that you should be excited about, perhaps. Paul, what are you excited about, perhaps, in the next uh, little bit of time? Uh, I genuinely, this is one that I'm genuinely quite looking forward to for a change, rather than me just going, this looks terrible, I don't know why I picked it. I'm quite looking forward to, and it's a remake, uh, it's Luca Guadagnino's remake of Dario Argento's 1977 seminal horror classic, Suspiria. Um, I was dubious when they said they were remaking Suspiria, then I saw who the director was and it warmed me slightly. Now I've seen the trailer, I think this looks rather good. We've got Tilda Swinton in it, um, who else? I forget who else is on the cast list of this thing now. Uh, Tilda Swinton's in it, which, which should be enough. Um, it looks like it's fantastically shot. We've got Tom York doing the soundtrack, which excites me immensely as I've already had a tattoo for anyone who knows me. 
Dakota Johnson of the Fifty Shades. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm less excited about that. Um, she's a really good actress, I think, but unfortunately, she signed on to all those films. She made a lot of money, though. Yeah, so more power to her, I suppose. In fairness, Krista Stewart signed on to, to the Twilight films, and she's doing all right for herself, actress, actressing wise. <laughs> Shia LaBeouf's partner Mia Goth is in this. As well. uh, yes. So anyway. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. I think it looks it looks to be incredibly well shot. He's, he's Luca Guadagnino. For anyone who's seen, at least call me by your name, is a fantastically talented technical filmmaker. Um, and I think if anyone can do something different with it, it is a talented director. Rather than my concern was they've done what they did with uh, a lot of the, the horror remakes, where they just throw like an MTV music video director at it and just see what happens. Like I, um, not I spit any grave that was made by someone else, but um, test. Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, those kind of stuff. I think that a lot of those guys were previously music video directors and they just they just literally farm it out with an untalented young cast and just have no reference to the original whatsoever. So I'm hoping here this is going to be a bit more like Evil Dead uh, than those films because the Evil Dead remake I thought was quite good uh, and certainly held the original in reverence. I don't think there'll be an issue with that here because because is a talented filmmaker and will certainly know the original well. So uh, I think it. I think it looks really good. It looks very, very different. Uh, it looks like a slightly different take on the source material. It still looks terrifying, which is good. Uh, Tommy York doing the soundtrack means will be interesting. And again, they haven't gone down the same route of like a Goblin-esque soundtrack because that would have just made it fall up too much like the original. So I'm not always on board with the idea of remakes. I'm still a little bit cautious about this one because it's a film I love very, very much. But it looks like if you're going to do it, do it with this level of talent. So the trailer looks quite good and is available now. If you haven't watched it yet, check it out. And it looks as if, uh, Paul, maybe we're going to get a European release somewhere in November this year. Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's too far. Uh, I mean, the, the IMDb entry on this is pretty sketchy. But yeah, we've got a French release on 7th of November. So I would assume towards the last couple of months of the year we'll, we'll get it here as well so yeah looking forward to that for sure and looking forward to maybe an emerging duel in terms of soundtracks between johnny greenwood and, uh, and tom york tom york yeah um interesting development in the sort of radiohead legacy but uh so paul i i'm gonna play a bit of a bait and switch on you because i said that i was going to talk about skyscraper and then i just started thinking you're a 34 year old man what are you doing with your life talk about something a bit more serious <laughs> I'm going to do uh, my coming attraction released on 13th of July in the UK at least is First Reformed. Um, First Reformed is from director Paul Schrader, who you know as the writer, taxi driver, and then also the director of some very, very ropey films recently, I, I would argue. Uh, Man Bites. No, not Man Bites Dog. What am I thinking of? Dog Man Bites Dog. Man Bites Dog is a film from Belgium, just to let you know. So, yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, then, Anyway, Paul Schrader directs this one, and from what I can see, this has an 86% approval score on Metacritic right now, which gets me a little bit excited. It is all about uh, a priest of a small congregation who's grappling with huge amounts of despair after a tragedy of some kind, and is tormented by the things that have happened to him in the past, a struggle with faith. Um, a, a haunted character needs real range. Who are we going to get in? Ethan Hawke. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. I mean, I saw him on Graham Norton's sofa talking about this movie recently, and it almost raised a laugh when he described what his character does in the movie. Because I think even one of the other guests on the show was like, "Oh, that's what you're 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 doing that." Um, however, it sounds as though it's getting really good early reviews. 
Um, Amanda Seyfried is uh, also in this one. And then another person who's a curveball, which is the comedian Cedric the Entertainer, who Ethan Hawke uh, does, is really good. And this is like a serious role, like a bit of that kind of what seems like stunt casting that may actually reveal an element to a person that you didn't really know about before. So, yeah, I'm anticipating this one. I think it should be interesting. I kind of like I'm drawn somewhat to films that deal with um, like crises of identity or existential crises and that kind of thing only recently i was thinking about this whole sequence in homicide life on the streets where andre brower's character kind of struggles with his relationship with god and how that impacts on his career as a detective so i don't know these things are sort of front and center for me right now so first reformed has come around at the right time and um we'll have a review probably in about a month from now uh, with any luck so yeah look forward to that Paul, play some some jingly music. <laughs> was that it? Was that your? That was my jingly music. Yeah. You to do impromptu. Oh, I see. Like, uh, oh, I, I think maybe something like right, like that. Which is the if anyone anyone out there isn't tone deaf, that was Jurassic Park. Which. Incidentally, Paul, uh, between you and I and anyone who still listens to this show, uh, may well be the uh, music that plays my fiance down the aisle when we get married. <laughs> um, so, yes, our big review for this week is uh, hotly anticipated by everyone. But at the front of that crowd was one <laughs> waving in a saw shaped flag for Jurassic World uh, colon Kingdom. Look what, look what T-shirt I'm wearing here. Jeff Goldblum, we have, what with the word chaos, chaos underneath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, wearing his Jeff Goldblum and ready to tell you all the ways in which this franchise just gets better and better and better. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Paul Anderson. What did you think of the new Jurassic Park? Should we set it up first? Should we set it up? before? I, because if I start, the problem is I probably won't stop for a while. I think we're going to go down like a Christmas special Last Jedi route here. So we might. <laughs> We should set it up and we need to set up something else, which is the fact that for probably the first time ever on this show, we're going to divide the review into two parts. The first part is just going to be general thoughts about the film. The second part, after a little warning, is going to be filled with spoilers. If you don't want spoilers because you are like frothing at the mouth with anticipation for this movie, don't listen to that part. We will forgive you. Just come back for episode 94 in a week's time. So the setup for Jurassic World colon Fallen Kingdom, Paul is that uh, the director of uh, The Impossible staged The Impossible again, but this time dinosaurs. No, the actual setup is that in the previous film, uh, Jurassic World, we saw this uh, sort of luxury resort island where the general public, the uh, Tom, Dick and Harrys of the world, could show up with their kids in tow and have a little sort of theme park sojourn where they could also take in the sights of genetically engineered super dinosaurs. Um, nothing could possibly have gone wrong. I'm going to shock you, Paul. Something went wrong. Uh, a lot of people perished, and it was an unmitigated disaster. In this mix, we had this kind of dinosaur whisperer uh, played by... I can't remember anyone's name today. Chris there? Pratt. Play, thank you. Played by Chris Pratt, uh, who was able to commune with dinosaurs, uh, train them to do whatever he, he willed them to do, and uh, also, which was bollocks, by the way. I hated that bit of it. But go on. Old horses uh, joining forces with the rather hapless uh, Claire Deering character, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who seemed incapable of taking off her high heels to run away from dinosaurs in the first movie. Uh, now, 
what has occurred is that island is no more as a tourist attraction as you could have imagined. But a team um, led by Bryce Dallas Howard, who sort of wears her heart on her sleeve as a protector of the rights of, of dinosaurs as living creatures, they want to go there and they want to secure the safe um, movement, passage of these dinosaurs to some sort of like uh, nature sanctuary where they can live in peace and harmony. Not everyone has the same idea. There are some bad guys around who want to use the dinosaurs for profit. Uh, chief among them is uh, Rafe Spall, a lovely, handsome Rafe Spall. And, uh, and uh, Toby Jones also playing a very sinister sort of auctioneer who wants to auction them all off for, for gain. Let's hear a clip. Proximity alert. Something's coming. What does that tunnel lead? Well, it connects to the rest of the... Park. Claire, it's the T-Rex. It's the Wait, T-Rex. No, it's, it's not the T-Rex. Probably. Probably? Lava! Lava! Deep breaths, Franklin. I think I've said enough about the basic setup of this film. Um, what have you got to say for yourself in regards to your initial reactions without getting into any spoilers? Without getting into any spoilers, okay. Uh, as, as regular listeners will know, I wasn't looking forward to this based on... The, I was quite looking forward to this initially when they announced J.O. Bayona as a director, so I will, I will put that out there. I was initially looking forward to this film because of the director. I then saw the trailers, and as has as been a running gag for the past few episodes, no, I wasn't looking forward to this. Um, to start with, I sat down in the cinema, and the opening the opening sequence rolls, and I was like, oh, oh, this this could be all right. This is this is quite tense. I'm quite enjoying this. Feels like a throwback to the first Jurassic Park. The it opens in the dark and in the rain, much like the opening of the of the original film. So, okay, this isn't too bad. Uh, quite enjoying this. I quite enjoy Chris Pratt when he's not phoning it in. Um, he's he's got he's an entertaining presence. Um, Jeff Goldblum was back for this, so I was quite excited about the fact that Jeff Goldblum was back in it. Um, and yes, yeah, so the film opens. I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed the the the, the initial build up. Then we get to uh, the bit on the island. So what Pete uh, neglected to mention there was the fact that they're trying to get the dinosaurs off the island because the island is about to erupt because it's a massive but the, a volcano. There's a volcano on the island that apparently is now not extinct anymore. Is active again. Paul, there's an active, there's an active MacGuffin on the island. That yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, and the bits on the island, the bits on the island aren't too bad, to be honest. I thought this is okay. It was, it was, there was arguably a bit too much silly comedy. Not quite enough focus on the dinosaurs for my liking. Um, there was this, a few scenes where you've just got like Chris Pratt just running around beating people up. I'm like, this is fucking a Jurassic, the Jurassic World film. Where's the dinosaurs? So that frustrated me a, a little bit in places. Um, and then they leave the island, Pete. Uh, and when they leave the island, the film, quite frankly, turns into one of the most stupid, dumbest films I think I've ever had the misfortune of laying my eyes on. What did you think, Pete? We'll go into why in the spoiler section afterwards. But Okay, okay. But can you just... I just want you to elaborate a tiny bit without yeah. being too spoilery. It, it might be a difficult line to walk, but, like, why so dumb, in your opinion? Why so dumb? Because the, the, what happens next is just doesn't make sense. You've got... I mean, I'll, I'll touch slightly on slightly spoilery here. You've got... If, you've only, if anyone's played the first Resident Evil game, going back into video games, you've got a mansion with a secret lab underneath it that is 
that is a ridiculous notion even in a video game. So in here, you've got a mansion with a lab tucked underneath it that can apparently store, what, not 12 species of dinosaurs, but 11 million, which seems to, which seems, the, the amount of dinosaurs in the film just seems to change at the whim of the at the whim of the director, you've got the and this is all bits that are in the trailer. You've got the Indoraptor, which is supposed to be the most dangerous creature that ever created, that behaves exactly like a Velociraptor would, and there's no real enhancements to its ability anyway. A, a little girl still manages to run away from this Indoraptor. Stop making new dinosaurs, which is what I've said in the trailer. Utilize what you've got. The T-Rex was scary enough. The Raptors are scary enough. Stop making shitty new dinosaurs that make absolutely no sense that someone would create more and more dinosaurs. And when, oh no, what a surprise, it's gone wrong again. Uh, what do they expect to happen? Like, this, if you're going to make this movie quite personally. I have taken this movie quite personally. Pete, what did you think? Before, Because otherwise I'm going to go on a spoiler a spoiler ridden rant. We'll get we'll get to that for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, I do just want to write a particular ship for, for the beginning of my thoughts, which is that we can't pile on. I mean, we can if we want to, but I don't want to pile on to J.A. Bayona too much because this film is... I not, agree. It's not written by J.A. Bayona. In fact, one of the writers of the movie is Colin Trevorrow, who, of course, was so successful with the first film that you loved. Um, <laughs> uh, so as director, of course, in that case. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I basically agree with you, Paul. I think that um, exactly to reiterate what you said, really, when the film opens and you've got shadowy dinosaur stealth kills i'm in i'm, I'm locked in brilliant give me well, that's what Bayona's good at like Bayona is a good he's a improver the orphanage he's a good horror filmmaker and i would i'll reiterate your point the problems of this film are not with the director because it is well directed if it hadn't been well directed it have lost it would have lost yet another star on my letterbox review it is quite well made the problem is with the writing without a shadow of a doubt well yeah um what, what i was going to say was not only those sequences right at the beginning with a lot of sort of darkness and that effective use of the lack of light there, but also that sequence that we saw over and over again in, I think, the second trailer, uh, maybe, that was released wide, where the um, three characters here who are Bryce Dallas Howard, Chris Pratt's character, and that kid, isn't it uh, Will Smith's kid? Oh, okay, possibly. It's Will Smith's kid. Justice Smith, I believe, is Will Smith, okay. one of his sons. Yeah, uh, who is the kind of comic relief-y, kind of goofy, scared-of-everything character in this. But when they're initially running away from this sort of erupting MacGuffin slash avalanche slash tidal wave tsunami of dinosaurs and then end up in the water, I like. let's for a moment take this away from our thoughts about the wider film, which I think we're going to reveal to be a, quite a bit of a, a failure. And just say that to me, that's going to be one of the most effective action sequences of the entire summer on its own, on its own merits. So from the point of view of the director, Jay Bayona, I think, as you've just said, Paul, that I don't know if he's like immune from criticism. He must have read the script before he signed up to it. That's what I will say. You've got to take opportunities in life. And he's obviously had a big one here. Um, but I think, yeah, you've got to look at this film from a structural point of view and where it sits in a legacy, in a sort of lineage and legacy of Jurassic park and jurassic world uh, after that and i'm not in the same camp of people who sort of say like oh don't touch this property it's it's sacrosanct it's sacred no it isn't the movies are made that bring audiences if there are eyeballs they'll make more this is very simple we don't need to keep explaining this to people however to do what they do with the structure of the film and to take away so many of the weapons that make this an imposing exciting invigorating proposition and leaving you with these sort of inert creatures who are almost at points in the film zero threat to anyone 
I think is the biggest crime committed by the film. And so from that standpoint, I, I entirely agree with what you're saying about, about this. Yeah, I could probably co-sign all of that, to be honest. And again, like, you know, as much as I love the original film, you're right, they aren't sacrosanct. Films are, are a money-making entity, whether, whether I like it or not. Um, they are a money-making entity. But, you know, if you're going to do something... My other, my other criticism before we get onto the spoilers, because I will drift into them, is that this is just... Uh, much like I felt the first Jurassic World was a lazy retread of Jurassic Park, almost a remake in places. Um, the more times I watch it, the more I see the similarities. This is just a retread of Lost World. Like you've got them, you've got them taking the dinosaurs off the island with some really flat, bland hunter-type sort of really cliched military-type characters and shady, nefarious dealings. And then you've got the T-Rex that gets off the island in the Lost World. Oh, as you've seen from the trailer, dinosaurs escape here. Like it doesn't even do anything different. It's just lazy. Like to quote Deadpool 2, it's just lazy writing. Like, it is just a retread of the second film. Um, it doesn't really do much different with it. And the things that it does try and do differently are just nonsense, just absolute ass. Like uh, yeah, and and because we're going to jump into this in, in a minute, I, I might want to leave this part by just saying like my sense with Jurassic World: colon Fallen Kingdom is that what they're trying to do with the increasing long view that studios have with hot properties, marketable properties, whether we're talking, you know, the MCU or Star Wars or all these things that we've reviewed and talked about recently, is we're trying to get from A to C, at least in this case, and the B, in the case of this movie, might stand for bullshit, Paul. <laughs> uh, we better say that now we're going to get into some spoilers about the film. We're going to talk about the maybe plot twists or things that might spoil it for you if you haven't seen the film already. So if you do not want to hear any spoilers for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, please stop listening about now. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Now, I'm going to give you a five, four, three, two, one. We're back. Right. So, you can speak openly and honestly, Paul, about anything that happened <laughs> in the movie. What in particular irked you once we got off the island? Once we got off the island, the whole thing is just fast. Like, you have, as I said, as I mentioned earlier, you have an underground lab that appeared to be ripped straight from Resident Evil. You've got, uh, you've got some reference to John Hammond retconned into it, where you've got some old man that used to work with him, played by James someone, I've completely forgotten his name, the guy from Babe who's in absolutely everything. Um, so he's like an endearing old man. Basically, they've tried to kind of basically is they've tried to posit him as a John Hammond character. Leave that alone. You don't you don't need to change the history of Jurassic Park by in this really unconvincing manner in which you've shoehorned this extra character into the story. Yeah. So anyway, you've got this ridiculous underground lab, which somehow has got this auction house in where they've caged dinosaurs and they're auctioning them off to the highest bidder. Who are they sending these dinosaurs to? Who's buying these dinosaurs? Where do they keep these dinosaurs? And the one-sheet villains that Toby Jones is sending these dinosaurs to, like this, is he a Russian, like some Russian, I assume he's a, he's a dictator, a terrorist, I don't know. What's he going to do with a fucking T-Rex? Like, one it's billion. just... One yeah, it, like, like, and what are you doing? Where are these dinosaurs actually going to go? Like, and that bit, I was just like, this is just stupid. Like, there is no common sense to this whatsoever. Just to jump in there, like, to counterpoint that with something like, and it might seem like a weird pull, but something like Okja. In Okja, we have this setup where these super pigs are sent around the world and then they're going to be harvested for their uh, meat and so on. And it's going to be a sort of mass industrialized uh, food creation process thing. Um, you buy into that a bit in that movie because yeah. it seems like it sort of folds into a... Well, it's given, you can imagine. It gives you context as to where the pigs are going, 
what they're going to do with it, rather than these faceless, faceless like do they look like villains from Taken? Like it's just like yeah, like I would buy a dinosaur. Because, Why? <laughs> because, and to, to reference what I said before the jump over to this side of, of the spoiler territory, uh, A to C in the middle is, is B maybe for bullshit. Because where we're going, surely, Paul, is clearly there's going to be a next film. It's very heavy handedly teased at the end of this. Yeah. There's going to be a next film. And that film is going to uh, involve dinosaurs, cities and weaponizing those dinosaurs. No. And wait for this, it's also going to involve, which is another problem, of four people in front of me walked out. And if it wasn't for this show, I would have joined them. Four people in front of me walked out when it was revealed that the little girl is, in fact, the first human clone. Yeah. What the fuck? Like, do we need that? Where's that going? You just drop that in there with no context whatsoever. And you're like, why? Why is that in there? Like, what, what are we doing here? Like, when did this film not become about the dinosaurs? And also, when you take the dinosaurs... This is a, a side note now. When you take the dinosaurs off the island and you put them in front of armed armed military, the dinosaurs aren't a threat anymore. There's no threat to the dinosaurs once you can just shoot them. So taking them off the island is a terrible idea anyway because they're not threatening. The whole reason Jurassic Park, and to a lesser extent Lost World, is scary is because it's people not armed. They're out of their element in the kind of the dinosaurs' natural habitat, which is why the dinosaurs are scary. You can you can create a super raptor, indo Indo whatever, Indo shit raptor, whatever it's called, all you like, but it's still just another dinosaur that can just be put down with bullets. And also the way they've structured this creature in this film, it's not even as I said, it's not even effective. It, there's one point where it taps its it taps its claw on the floor, which obviously is a nod to Jurassic Park, but this thing is supposed to be this super over engineered predator that is just like the most effective killing machine on the planet so it just gives away its position like like that and it, is, it sounds like nitpicking and maybe to an extent that it is but the, it's not even a very effective killing machine the, the little girl outruns it immediately and it does nothing that and it doesn't there's nothing they do with that dinosaur that a raptor couldn't have done that they couldn't have done with a velociraptor they just had to create this stupid genetic engineering thing that just is just nonsense cool. Oof, there are nits tired flies, nits flies literally all over the room <laughs> yeah. to take each point and now i've lost track of each of them right <laughs> To come back on the, when you said, what are we doing here? The girl is the first clone. Well, what we're doing here is very basic screenwriting, which is to say, can we have a character who is um, in some way a, 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 a approximation of the villain? Right. You get this across so many different narratives yeah. where it's like, OK, so how can we relate to these monstrous creatures? Well, in some way, we're going to use a human character or a child. And in this case, the child has been cloned so she can, you know, understand the possible plight and the possible uh, ambivalence that we might feel about the X-Men. No, I mean the dinosaurs <laughs> when they're in the world. Should they all be put down? Because that's how this felt. Right. Like even earlier on when we've got this Bryce Dallas Howard task force who apparently occupy like one small manhattan office or something yeah save all the dinosaurs uh compared to the might of like international governments and armies um when you have who apparently just occupy one mansion with a really small lab underneath as well become very small but this, this again just feels like you're you're taking notes from things like x-men stories or outsider stories where it's like how are we supposed to feel conflicted about the dinosaurs no I think the reason why Jurassic Park originally works and going back to the, you know, the film, the first film is because you're in the territory of another 
and you are there for the vulnerable one. You're the prey. You're the hunted. You're actually the invading force who could just be taken out. This is almost like going, throwing back to those films that are metaphors for the Vietnam War and stuff like that, right? But when, like you said, Paul, when you take these dinosaurs and you put them into like our world, as you saw with the first Jurassic Park sequels, it lessens the jeopardy and it lessens the stakes because taking them out is going to be a lot easier. And also, it seems like the screenwriters want to lessen the abilities of the dinosaurs, not increase them. I'm with you. Yeah, and again, you know, the, the, the end of the film as well, where they, as we are in small spoiler territory, they, the dinosaurs escape from this lab. Although they, they claim to have taken 11 species off the island, it feels to me like that lab is a lot bigger than it actually is portrayed as being on screen because the amount of dinosaurs that seem to escape seem to be possibly in the hundreds. Um, and they're just like, why, why have you let them out into the world? Like, what? Where is this going? I don't understand where where Trevor intends to take this this franchise. You've, you've let the dinosaurs out into the world, and for for what purpose, really? Other than other than for some set pieces where pterodactyls fly through New York, I, I suppose is possibly what they're looking to do here. Yeah. But it just it just doesn't seem it just seems bizarre, and the whole thing just seems. I mean, blockbusters are quite often are very silly. I, I get that, and I'm you know I enjoy silly blockbusters, but there's something that my problem with this, I think, because the original managed to feel so so grounded in what it was doing that actually it raised a lot of questions about is, is cloning dinosaurs possible? I don't even remember that time when the film came out. People were going, is it possible? Some scientists went, oh, we could bring back a mammoth, and there was a lot of actual genuinely scientific interest in that for in the first Jurassic Park because it, it, it managed to feel grounded um, as much as it felt like science fiction. Whereas this just is just OTT all the way through, just completely over the top and there's no real grounding to it at all. Um, and then the dinosaurs I think in, in some places I've probably mentioned they just take a backseat to Chris Pratt just beating people up. <laughs> yeah, and I mean I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean in a way though, it's OTT in one sense, but then on the other hand, if we're gonna go this way, go bigger. Go bigger. Have like more peril. Have have dinosaurs just ripping everyone to shreds when it comes to auction house time. I mean, it did become like uh, dinosaurs under the hammer for like about fifteen minutes. Yeah, weird. But um, yeah. I mean, like to round off my thoughts. I don't really want to like get bogged down in in every detail of the movie. But like, uh, I think Chris Pratt in the first film, uh, the first Jurassic World film, seemed to me slightly like he was phoning it in and i think that in this film he has the phone fully attached to his face yes Um, i'm I'm not sure he's that (laughs) invested like compare this performance with his performance as star lord in guardians i think that it seems as though one of those is clearly dearer to his heart than the other i mean maybe i'm I'm completely wrong no i completely agree with that i would say it felt a bit like he was phoning it in to be honest i think bryce dallas howard is is fine um she's fine uh i think the kid is is fine but not particularly entertaining or funny um, or, or it adds nothing to the plot really i don't really understand yeah just, there's a lot of it i just sat there just blank faced i think was it a loss was this a loss pete so, <laughs> yeah with that all having been said i don't think it was a, a raging success but um you know the kingdom may have fallen paul but it will rise again because there is going to be a third film it'll probably be a couple of years and then we can get all excited about that one or not or not as the case may be yeah uh yeah that is directed by colin trevor i think as well as being written by so um yeah hooray (laughs) right is that it then pete are we done for the week without jack have we missed we are yeah we will be back with the like normal order of things uh very very soon um but until then, yeah, I'm going to try and squeeze films in between football matches because uh, 
that is going to be a yeah a tough undertaking, as I've said. Oh, and yeah, just to reiterate that thing that we were going to do through the World Cup uh, films from the countries that England play. Going to start with Tunisia. Now I'm going to angle for maybe doing these as bonus things, but we'll see how it pans out in terms of the schedule, and then we'll we'll surely put them up when we when we put up the next episode anyway. Um, until then, I guess. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back. We'll be back next week with well, Hereditary. I think we'll be reviewing next week. I think that's almost a, that's a dead sound. I'm very excited for Hereditary. I'm off to see it tonight, actually, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yes, uh, so definitely Hereditary. Possibly one other. Well, we we shall see. Uh, but yes, in the meantime, you can catch us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers Cinema on Instagram and Facebook, or email us at strangerscinema at gmail.com. Uh, but that's it for this week. So thank you for listening. Shut up and sit down.